Our next speaker is Mike Ash. Michael Ash has been a Fair Mormon member, or a member of Fair, we don't call it Fair Mormon anymore, but Fair, uh, for more than 20 years. He's a longtime contributor with Fair, a longtime answer of questions, and uh, a big support for our volunteer group. Uh, he's been featured in nearly 90 podcasts and 30 videos and more than two decades of writing LDS-themed material. Uh, he was a former weekly columnist for Mormon Times, owned by the Darius Deseret News, and he's done a number of, of things. He's written uh, four LDS books, and he's uh, with, and he just, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And we'll, with that, we'll, we'll turn the time over to Mike Ash. Thank you, Scott. What a marvelous conference this has been. It's so exciting to be here back uh, meeting with people in person. And uh, been very grateful for the presentations that have uh, happened already this morning and yesterday and how many of them dovetail with uh, my own topic. Um, So uh, for the last eight to ten years, I've been uh, working on a project... uh, that's culminated in this book uh, entitled Rethinking Revelation and the Human Element in Scripture, The Prophet's Role as Creative Co-Author. I started this uh, just as I was finishing up my second edition of Shaken Faith Syndrome and, and finally put it together. It, it ended up, no matter how many times I tried to cut it, it still ended up at over 700 pages. Um, so even though I, I hope it'll be an intellectual and maybe spiritual tool, uh, if nothing else, it might be a great doorstop. So the fundamental points that I hope to make in my book are to show how our scriptures are a product of inspiration and intellect, show how the synthesis automatically and unavoidably draws upon a prophet's cultural intellect, show how this mortal element in scripture making automatically introduces the mistakes of men, and show how this errant scripture can still serve as consecrated narratives. Since I finished my book, I found nuggets of gold in the writings of other LDS and non-LDS writers. Uh, to quote Socrates, although somebody, uh, some people attribute the quote to Plutarch, it says, education is the kindling of a flame, not the filling of a vessel. So some of the nuggets I've discovered after submitting my book uh, for publication are included in this presentation. The community that created and preserved much of what is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls is often referred to as the Qumranian or Qumran community. For a time, the Qumranian's leader was known as the teacher of righteousness. Even though he is never ascribed the title of a prophet, writes Dr. Travis Williams, the descriptions of his role and authority within the community are reminiscent of prophetic activity. The Qumranians believed that the teacher had the power and authority to engage in a type in a type of sacred proof texting and was justified in adapting the message of ancient biblical texts to the Qumranians, Qumranians' day and cultural circumstances. The word exegesis basically means to interpret a text. Eisegesis means to read our thoughts into a text. So technically what the teacher of righteousness was doing was eisegesis. Most scholars, however, refer to the method of interpretation found in Qumran, and we will see in other biblical texts, as contemporizing exegesis. 
actualizing exegesis, charismatic exegesis, revelatory exegesis, and creative exegesis. The teacher was believed received divine revelation for his interpretations. Some scholars characterize the teacher's process as revelation on revelation, or revelation based on the interpretation of Scripture. The texts were created. Uh, the texts which were created by this interpretation are known as Pesher. Pesher exegesis is also found in the Old and New Testaments. According to biblical scholar Dr. Peter Enns, for instance, during the post-exilic period, 5th century B.C. and onward, some Jewish community members had a very creative ways of handling their Bible as they sought to apply the Bible to their own changing circumstances. Uriel Simon, professor at Bar Ilan University in Israel, claims that the study of the Torah cannot rest content unless it is reinforced by a creative exegetical work that arises out of and responds to the needs of this generation. Some scholars argue that the Gospels, likewise, use a similar exegesis when connecting Christ to the Old Testament Messiah. In the Gospel of Matthew, writes Dr. Andy Woods, we find a collection of arguments written to a Jewish audience and fashioned to convince them that Christ truly was the long-awaited Davidic Messiah spoken in the Old Testament. Enns similarly argues that Matthew was a creative reader of the Bible and was par, as was par for the course in the Judaism of his day. As LDS scholar Charles Harrell points out, New Testament writers not only drew on Old Testament passages as proof texts to bolster their witness of Christ, but they sometimes embellished events to better accommodate these proof texts. According to some scholars, including non-Mormon scholars, the prophets and apostles were divinely authorized and inspired to engage in creative exegesis. Non-LDS theologian Dr. Earl Ellis, for example, argues that the interpretation of the scripture is a key feature of prophetic activity. Evangelical scholar Robert Thomas believes that the apostles had the right qualifications when it came to creative exegesis. New Testament writers, he explains, possess the gift of, an, of apostleship and or the gift of prophecy and it that enabled them to receive and transmit direct revelation from God. Those gifts enabled the gifted ones to practice what is called charismatic exegesis of the Old Testament. That practice entailed finding hidden or symbolic meanings that could be revealed through an interpreter possessing divine insight. As an evangelical Christian, Thomas believes that those gifts died off with the apostles and that no contemporary interpreter possesses those gifts today. In Judaism, one of the rabbinic exegetical approaches to interpreting the Torah was known as sod, a belief that scriptural texts contained a deeper, true meaning. For example, in Amos 3.7, we are told that God revealed his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The word secret in this verse comes from the Hebrew sod. Mosiah likewise claims that a seer can not only see the past and the future, but secret and hidden things as well. Not completely unlike the teacher of righteousness, Nephi, we are told, did liken all scriptures unto his people for their profit and learning. I believe a prophet has the divine calling and right to appropriate and repurpose various cultural ideas, teachings, artifacts, and even documents. As a prophet, he has the transformative power to liken all things as tools to draw people to Christ. A prophet does not need to be the one to create 
or compose a story narrative for it to qualify as, as scripture. He is authorized and empowered to liken past and present narratives, thereby creating do- divine connections that sanctify the narrative of scripture. Likening an ancient narrative, however, almost assuredly requires a modification of that narrative to meet the language, idioms, culture, and worldviews of the audience to which the narrative is likened. As I argue in Rethinking Revelation, a prophet's likening of the word of God acts in a way like the blessing of plain bread and water at the sacrament table. It elevates the scriptural narratives, like the bread and water, into something holy that has the power to bring us to Christ and unites us with God and the rest of his covenant people. This is why I refer to the scriptures as consecrated narratives. The sacrament bread and water needn't be 100% perfect. We have wheat or white, crust and no crust, and uh, glucose free, and uh, um, at, at times other things instead of bread. So they needn't be 100% perfect to serve as salvific vehicles, which means they're emblems that can help facilitate the power of Christ's saving atonement. So likewise, scriptural narratives need not be perfect to serve as consecrated vehicles that open our hearts and minds to personal revelation and bind us to God. Scriptures can, therefore, be a mix of various things. They can relate tales of myth and legend, which might have little to no basis in fact, but were perceived to be authentic by those who recorded the narratives. They could be mostly accurate narratives that recount the essential elements, feelings, or intent of past events, but are punctuated by the inaccuracies, exaggerations, or the minimizations of human memory or bias. Or they could be accurate historical narratives and cultural legends. When we appreciate the role of creative exegesis in biblical and Book of Mormon times, I think we gain a greater test or understanding of how Joseph might have translated the Book of Mormon and Book of Abraham, and quite frankly, how he received any revelation. So what do I mean by human element to the scripture, or my claim that prophets are creative co-authors? First, it's important to note that this label does not mean that I believe Joseph simply made up fictitious material to supplement or blend with divine revelation. Instead, it means that Joseph would have intuitively recontextualized divine input according to what he already thought, knew, or presumed. According to American theologian Richard Phillips, and I stumbled across this after I'd already published a new book and was preparing this presentation, the human element in Scripture, I thought it was interesting because I didn't think I was using a term that other people were using, but the human element in Scripture incorporates the experiences, perspectives, and even feelings of various authors. Since finishing my book, I have been surprised to discover how often writers refer to the human element in Scripture. As Archibald Hodge and Benjamin Warfield wrote in 1881, we do not deny anywhere present human element in the Scriptures. The Scriptures, these writers note, and as non-LDS, they're referring to the Bible, are the product of the dual authorship of both God and man. Scripture is not only man's word, wrote non-LDS theologian J.I. Packer, but also equally God's words, spoken through man's lips or written with man's pen. In other words, Scripture has double authorship, and man is only the secondary author. Even according to the Catholic doctrine of inspiration, it is commonly understood that God is the primary author of Scripture and the sacred writer is the secondary author. The prophet's role as co-author is present when creating new Scripture, recontextualizing existing scripture for a modern audience or when translating scripture. 
As New Testament scholar Dr. K.K. Yao explains, translation does not convey the original tent of one language to another with perfect clarity. The interpreter should recognize, he argues, that reading interpretation is always constructive. The interpreter plays a significant role in the meaning-producing process. The creative, constructive work of the reader cannot be absent from the reading process. While most other churches believe that this co-authorship produces a necessarily errant or virtually inerrant scripture, many Christian theologians reject the belief that God produced the scripture through mechanical means where God overrides the human faculties of the inspired author. Oh, but I'm slide behind here. Where God produces the uh, scriptures through a mechanical means, where God overrides the human fac- uh, faculties of the inspired author, or simply dictated audibly or mentally the words that were to be written. So they reject this. According to what is known to biblical scholars as the dynamic theory of scriptural creation, God gave the writers of scriptures the ideas, and then select and they selected the best words to describe them. He gave the thoughts to the men chosen and left them to record their thoughts in their own dynamic inspiration. Some scholars refer to this as in the inspired concept theory, wherein concepts are inspired while the word choices are not. We find similarities in the theories regarding to this regarding uh, Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon. Although different LDS scholars don't necessarily agree about how tight or loose Joseph's translation Uh, was, or what was written on the Nephite plates, most LDS scholars recognize that Joseph's own thoughts would have uh, participated in the translation process. Even Royal Skousen, who has argued for a tight control theory, has more recently suggested the Book of Mormon translation is a creative and cultural translation that involves considerable intervention by the translator. I propose a co-authorship position that more closely aligns with the theories proposed by Brant Gardner and Blake Osler. In Blake Osler's article, uh, original article in which he theorized an expansion theory for the Book of Mormon translation, Osler proposed a creative co-participation model for Revelation. It seems to me that the Book of Mormon makes most sense if it is seen as both a revelation to Joseph Smith and as Joseph's expansion of the text. This view requires a theology of revelation focusing on the interpretation inherent in human experience. This view is grounded in two fundamental premises. One, there can be no revelation without human experience, and two, there can be no human experience without interpretation. This translation theory, Osler's, and like I said, uh, um, Brant Gardner has very similar to that, is similar to the approach I take to Joseph's translations. And if we believe that Joseph and all the prophets are co-authors in producing translation scripture, then I believe that it means that we might find elements of the author in those scriptures. Four years ago, I gave a talk at the 2017 Fair Conference entitled, After the Manner of Their Language, the Key to Wisdom. The talk included material for the project that ended up being in this book. I won't rehash the material from that talk because you can look it up or watch it on YouTube, but to summarize what I presented, I found that cognitive studies shed some um, interesting light on why we humans do the things we do or think the things we think. Our brains want to see patterns, so we see patterns. These patterns exist not only in the things we see and hear, but in our concepts and our worldviews. We learned about this a little bit uh, in some of the other presentations. 
God obviously knows that our brains have an affinity to patterns, and I believe he leverages these cognitive quirks when he communicates with us. He accommodates our inherent worldviews and bias to find patterns by allowing us to recontextualize gospel truths according to the manner of our own language. Divine communication, I wrote, appears to be a mix of divine accommodation and humankind's recontextualization. In biblical times, for example, the Hebrews recontextualized God's revelation about our relationship to him and the cosmos by adapting divine truths to the creative narratives from their surrounding communities. Thus, the creation story in Genesis was not written as as a scientific recounting of how God created the cosmos, but rather as a recontextualization, probably relying on uh, Mesopotamian cultural tales, to speak to the Israelites of the day and to liken those cultural tales in a co-authorship of divine revelation so that the Israelites could see themselves in the story and know that God still loved them and was the power behind their existence. I believe the human element can be found in all of the scriptures. And in my book, I give examples from the Bible, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Abraham, and the Book of Mormon. In the interest of time, I'm just going to have a couple of examples. First vision. I believe the human element can be found in the retelling of Joseph's first vision, which occurred in approximately 1820. Um, his earliest recital, however, dates to 1832. Joseph then created a recital in 1835, another one in 1838, and then 1842. The 1838 account ultimately became the official account. One of the biggest problems between the different versions, according to critics, is that Joseph only mentions being visited by the Lord in the 1832, the first recital, but two personages in subsequent recitals. It's important to know that Joseph purposefully created the 1830 recital to set the record straight because of the many anti-Mormon reports that were circulating at the time. Uh, So here's where my 2017 talk and the material which is in expanded form of my book uh, might come in handy. It explains how our minds, memories, and cultural uh, culture connect the dots to solve puzzles or to paint a bigger picture of the human element in the retelling of the first vision. Is it possible that through the years, Joseph misremembered some of the details of his vision, innocently or intentionally embellished other details, or forgot yet other details or the sequence of events? Absolutely. If, in fact, I would say it's an absolute certainty that not one of us, not one of, excuse me, of the recitals is entirely accurate and fully complete, for the same reason that every story you or I or anyone else tells is not entirely accurate or complete. No recounting of any historical event would pass a test of complete objectivity or can share every detail. Something will always be left out, something will always be emphasized, while other things will be emphasized. Thanks to unavoidable human bias, some things will be explained with perfunctory reports, while other things will be elucidated with comprehensive descriptions. Some things will be wrong, some things will be partially incorrect or partly right, and some things will be incomplete. We humans have no choice but to come up short when describing events from our memories. Regardless of whether someone accepts the first vision as real as a real event or not, discrepancies between recitals do not prove that Joseph falsified the account, but they do show that he was human. When Joseph recorded his first known account of the Theophany in 1832, a dozen years had passed, plenty of time for Joseph to forget or conflate some of the details, and plenty of time to recontextualize the event according to his 1832 brain. The story's retelling would be different from the way the story would have been told in 1820. 
our future selves unavoidably see things differently than our past selves. One of the many inescapable characteristics of human nature is that a retelling of past memories will be colored by the time period lens in which we recount the memory. As neuroscientist Matthew Hudson explains, our brain memories instinctively revise our histories to make better stories, omitting certain details and changing others so they conform to a cohesive, compelling, and often complementary tale. Thus, in hindsight, we see that otherwise random events align in a pattern that serves our story, unaware that we unconsciously custom-fit the theme to the events. Joseph's first vision occurred in a place and time of religious revivalism, where many frontier people searched for spiritual truths, uh, attended revivals, and experienced supernatural experiences, including others who claimed visitations from Christ. And, and I'm of the opinion, I mean, who are we to say, if somebody claims they have a vis- visitation from Christ, how, who are we to say that they did not? Um, 19th century visionary recitals were mainly shared by word of mouth, but at least a few were recorded in print. Thus, it's reasonable to assume that Joseph would have heard about neighborhood visions both before experiencing his own vision as well as after his first vision, but certainly prior to his first known recital in 1832. It also seems reasonable to assume that Joseph's hearing or reading of the visions of others might have influenced the structure, sequence, and emphasis which Joseph instinctively selected when recounting his own experience. Elements we find in some of the other 19th century revivalist uh, visions include retiring to the woods or some other private place to pray, a dark and wicked presence which attempts to hinder the prayer, a white shining light, communication from the Lord, and a personal joy enveloping the one receiving the vision. In every instance where we have a record, the visionary was told or felt that the sins were forgiven. Joseph had to have been familiar with at least a few of these accounts for the simple fact that there may have been many more visions which were shared verbally or lost to history than the few remaining examples that survived in documented form. If you purchase a red Kia Sportage vehicle, you suddenly become aware of all the red Kia Sportages on the road. Joseph might have already been familiar with the local claim of theophanies before his own vision and would probably have noticed them even more after his first vision. In 1832, when he recorded his first recital, Joseph would naturally have drawn upon his memories and the framework of similar stories to produce a brief description of his visitation from deity. While some of his visions, can, visions contemporary to Joseph's vision mention the appearance of both the Father and the Son, the most common theme seems to be a visitation from the Lord, who let the supplicant know that he or she was forgiven of their sins. This seems to be the approach Joseph took with his earliest recital as well. In 1832, when he briefly described his vision, and it was very short actually, his vision depicted a significant personal spiritual experience. The framework in which he portrayed the experience was perhaps a bit of a Me Too chronicle. It seems reasonable to conclude that Joseph was not only aware of the other visitation accounts, but also aware that Latter-day Saints, prospective Latter-day Saints in his community, were equally aware of the collection of, uh, collected recite, recitations of such visitations. To Joseph and his followers of the time, such a visitation was not by itself uniquely vital to his role as a prophet or founder of a new church. The Book of Mormon was the key element in his new religious movement. It wasn't until many years later when the memory of the similar manifestations began to fade and a more developed LDS narrative began to form that the first vision became a vital ingredient, once again shaped by hindsight expectations, in the restorative narrative. 
As one who both accepts the modern scholarly view of memory as well as the belief that Joseph was an honest mortal with a divine calling, I accept the primary truthfulness of the 1830 account. In all his accounts, except for the 1832 report, Joseph mentions two personages, and I believe that Joseph was, in fact, visited by two personages. In the context of creating his earliest known recital of vision, the emphasis was one of personal nature with past sins absolved by Jesus. Joseph intuitively framed his 1832 narrative to speak to audiences familiar with the stories of other visions in his environment. The interpreters. While I don't have time to get into the details in this brief discussion, I theorize that perhaps the interpreting stones that Joseph received from Moroni were not, in fact, the same stones that the brother of Jared received from the Lord on Mount Shelem. Now, I'm not arguing definitively that they're not, but I'm suggesting that they might not be, and I offer answers to what I think are all the primary objections on this point. Instead, I wonder if Mosiah or some other Nephite likened Mesoamerican divining tools to the brother of Jared's stones after Mosiah translated Ether's record. Similarly, Joseph would have initially likened the Nephite stones to his personal seer stone, as well as the appearance of 19th century spectacles. Not long after Joseph received the spectacles, it seems he likened them to the Old Testament Urim and Thummim, perhaps because of the suggestion of other earlier, uh, from other followers of his. In his book, The Lost 116 Pages, a book I highly recommend, by the way, Don Bradley offers one of the newest theories about what the Nephite spectacles might have looked like. While I accept most of the arguments in Bradley's uh, book, we part ways on a few points on interpreters, and I explain why in my book. I believe that the interpreters find a comfortable home in a Mesoamerican environment. They fit the shape, size, translucency, shining qualities, bundling, and function of what we find in uh, ancient Mesoamerican diviners. Of all the many ways in which I believe the interpreters fit with a, a Mesoamerican diviners, I'm limiting the discussion to this. Mesoamerican cultures often engaged in the ritual bundling of sacred objects. While classic Maya art depicts, uh, typically depicts bundles of cloth, some bundles, books, and community documents were occasionally stored in wooden chests or coffers, and some classic Mayan art depicts bundles as wooden boxes and wrapped in textiles. Likewise, the Book of Mormon and the interpreters were, um, were bundled or enclosed in a stone box. One early American account refers to the contents of a sacred bundle as containing the heart of God, the Father, a bread of precious, uh, excuse me, a bead of precious stone. Sometimes the bundles were described as wrapped fireness of heat or the bundling of, bundle of flames. An interesting description since both the Israelite Urim and Thummim and Mesoamerican diviners are sometimes equated with fire, and uh, the Nephite interpreters in the Book of Mormon were told would shine in the darkness. Bundles also could be understood as Mesoamerican codices, or books written on bark, paper, skins that opened, uh, and that opening a bundle was like opening a codex. Why did the early Americans bundle some of their sacred belongings? A wrapped object was protected, sealed, from profane, from profane handling or view. The contents of the bundle, observes Karen Winses, could be made sacred or sanctified, made holy and elevated to a special status by the very act of bundling. Both wrapping and unwrapping a bundle has significant ritualistic implications. The bundle, explains Carolyn Tate, was understood to be both protective and secret, and the unwrapping ceremony was often calculated to denote political or religious control. To quote Julia Guernsey and Kent Riley, the act of wrapping not only veiled objects, but also enhanced their sacredness through concealment. 
Conversely, the unwrapping of a bundled object uh, or monument was an act of discovery and disclosure. At times, it appears to have been metaphorically equivalent to opening a portal with cosmic realms. In the ancient Near East, seals were broken when it was time to expose or introduce legitimate uh, or legitimize the purity of original contents in a document. The breaking of such seals was sometimes reserved for the end of times. Likewise, ancient Mesoamericans were not at liberty to unwrap the bundle at any time they wanted, and their ritualized opening of bundles was the only possible access to the contents, which meant that the unveiling constituted a major ritual event. Sacred bundles symbolized a group's identity, explains Winses, and served as the symbols of the group's predestined ascendancy as well as their lineage. The sacred bundles of the Mixtec royal house of Tilantonga, she notes, functioned as a symbol of communal identity and as an ancestral bundle. The Nephites likewise had the sacred artifacts that linked them to the founding fathers, to Lehi, the Israelites of the Old World, and Joseph of Egypt. Moreover, those artifacts and records were not only religious in nature, but political signs of, the author- of their authority and kinship. The wrapping and unwrapping of ama- uh, ancient American bundles were likewise conceptually linked to uh, rulership rituals. The sacred bundles of the ancient Maya, explains Winses, also tend to appear in situations or states characterized by transition and transformation, where they function as agents in negotiating between the natural and the supernatural realms, between myth and history, and between ancestors and the living. Sacred bundles, Julia Guernsey notes, establish direct communication with the gods. While sacred bundles may have been used at various times and for multiple reasons in Mesoamerican history, bundles were often given to humans. Winces points out that at the dawning of a new age, or during a clear transition from an old era to a new era, Mesoamerican art sometimes depicted the opening of a sacred bundle during the onset of a new era. In such art, the bundles appeared to explode, scattering ashes in all directions. Documents from the Inquisition, notes Wynne says, recount the trepidation with which indigenous people responded when sacred bundles were opened. So likewise, the Nephite plates were not to be unveiled to anyone at any time, but were only to be opened, openly handled by the prophet, like a Mesoamerican shaman, and unveiled to others, in our case the witnesses, and only according to specific pre-designated ritual, if you will, events. The Book of Mormon, like Mesoamerican bundles, was also opened in a time of crisis, in a new era, a time of restoration of all things that had been lost, when divine authority needed to be restored, and a time when a sacred lineage, in this case the gathering of Israel, needed to be reestablished. It should also be noted that according to Mesoamerican myths, as well as Mixtec codex, codices, sacred bundles were often delivered not only at the beginning of new eras, but were brought from heavenly deities, primordial ancestors, or founding patriarchs. So likewise, the translation of the Book of Mormon was, was the first step in gathering or uniting God's covenant, uh, covenant people. One of the significant uh, things I discovered while doing my research for this book was the importance of remembering in the Book of Mormon. I made this discovery on my own, independently from any article author who might have influenced my thoughts and conclusions, but I discovered after I finished my first drafts that my thought were not ideas that were totally unique, that some, at least some other LDS authors had th- thought of some of the same things. In the scriptures, remembering and forgetting seem to be connected to covenants with God. Those who remember God are part of God's covenant people. Those who forget God are not. Interestingly enough, one of the Hebrew words that connects 
the connect uh, remembering is a covenant also denotes a record book. So likewise, the Old Testament book of Daniel tells us that those who are found in their book of remembrance will have everlasting life, while those who are not, or, or are not, uh, or will not be in the book, won't have everlasting life. When God made his covenant with Abraham, he told Abraham to sacrifice an animal, cut it into pieces, and let the smoke from the altar pass through the pieces. The verb which refers to the passing of the smoke is the Hebrew abar, if I pronounce that correctly. The verb means to pass or cross over, but can sometimes be used in a similar way to cut. Thus, the smoke cutting through the pieces represented a symbol of their covenant. Cutting and covenants also pre, uh, are also present in the dividing of sacred, sacrificial animals, um, as well as the covenant of circumcision, which memorialized or remembered the covenant God made with Abraham. In the Jewish encyclopedia, we read that the cutting of an, a sacrificial animal into two parts between which the contracting parties pass show that they are bound to each other. Thus, they are symbols of the covenant relationship. It is interesting, therefore, to note that the Greek word symbolom, from where we get symbol, originally referred to a clay seal that was broken in half, uh, divider cut into two pieces. One half was given... There we go. One half was given to each of the two parties of a contract. So the root behind symbolum means to bring together the two pieces that were once broken apart. Greek literature suggests that this breaking apart and reuniting is like a parent and child who are separated and then reunited, and that reuniting is often expressed with a hand clasp or embrace. The hand clasp and embrace, writes Todd Compton, perfectly express this concept of two separate halves coming together to create a unity. Not only does the cutting, dividing draw attention to the ultimate reuniting and becoming one, a covenant unity, but the act of moving, crossing over from one piece to a united piece, also signifies a covenant boundary crossing from one identity to another. Or in, in our case, crossing a boundary to become part of God's covenant people. After Moses' death, when the Israelites crossed, again the Hebrew word abar, the Jordan River into the Promised Land, Joshua commanded each of the twelve tribes to gather a stone from the Jordan River. This would be a sign to remember what the Lord had done for their boundary crossing from their previous home to the land of promise. Then to the Israelites, uh, thus to the Israelites, cultic memorial objects aroused divine remembrance for subsequent generations who could also remember the covenant relationship. When we take the sacrament, we ritually remember Christ and the covenant to keep his commandments. We recommit to our boundary crossing by taking Christ's name upon us. There's a name change going on there. And to commit to change, we recommit to our baptismal covenants, which involved, according to Paul, becoming new creatures or having new identities. The scriptures are, in a way, books of remembrance, or books that remember God's covenant with his covenant people. I believe that the scriptures can generate a binding or sealing power that mobilizes the desire and resolve to unite with God's covenant people and helps facilitate the ultimate divine conversion process. The scriptures are tokens or God-recognized memorials, records of the divine memory of the ancient and modern covenants that make up his covenant people. By reading the narratives under the guidance and influence of the Holy Spirit, we ritually remember, internalize, or memorialize the promises made between our ancestors and God, as well as the covenants we make with God. 
The power of Scripture, the secret sauce that makes them different from other books, is the fact that they are divinely sanctioned, made holy, to serve as consecrated narratives. Other books can make you feel good, inspire you, or relate uplifting stories. But only through the Scriptures can we ritually remember our covenants, actualize the promises and blessings in our life, transform our souls, and unite with the divine family. Doctrine and Covenants 859 says that those not found in the Book of Remembrance are cut asunder. A covenant bound, uh, a covenant uh, connects, uh, they're separated by cutting. To cut asunder is to be outside of the covenant. When the covenant memories documented by the Nephite prophets to the symbolic and literal uh, converting and likening of those Nephite memories into a renewed covenant for the Latter-day Saints, the Book of Mormon is sanctified. Just as plain bread is made holy by the priest who asks a blessing upon in sacramental prayers, or sacrament prayers, I believe the Book of Mormon was made holy through the translation process of God's covenant, or excuse me, God's 19th century prophet so that his covenant people could be united. I believe that the Book of Mormon, more than any other book, not only helps restore the ritual memory of God's covenant people, but can initiate a spiritual aspiration to unite with God and his covenant people. Narratives are the records of our in-group, our covenant-making events and our rituals. As Agnes Heller explains, as long as a group of people maintains and cultivates a common cultural memory, this group of people exists. Whenever cultural memory enters into oblivion, a group of people disappear, irrespective of the circumstance uh, whether they will or will not be recorded in the books of history. Presence or absence, life or decay of a people does not depend on biological survival of an ethnic group, but on the survival of a shared cultural memory. The covenant people of God exist because of their cultural narratives, as recorded in the standard works. Without the scriptures, we would not know of past covenants, rituals, and prototypes. The Mulekites didn't bring scriptures with them, and they forgot any covenants they might have previously made with God. The Lord told Nephi that if he wouldn't have acquired the brass plates, their nation would dwindle and perish in unbelief. King Benjamin said that if not for the brass plates, they would have suffered in ignorance, not knowing the mysteries of God. And Alma said that the brass plates enlarged the memory, we see again a covenant connection memory, of his, of his people, and brought them to the knowledge of their God and unto the salvation of their souls. We see the memory connection here again and note the memory and covenants often go hand in hand in the scriptures. Without scripture, we would lack the cultural memory needed to bind us to previous members in our in-group. And we would lack the ritual memory covenants required to bind us to God and the rest of God's covenant people. Joseph had been told that part of his prophetic role included the charge to gather Israel, which I interpret to mean gathering God's covenant people. In 1830, God told Joseph that he was called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect. When Moroni first appeared to Joseph, he said that the covenant which God made with ancient Israel um, was at hand and to be fulfilled. And the angel quoted several scriptures which foretold the gathering of the elect. Likewise, in 3 Nephi, we are told that the coming forth of the Book of Mormon would be a sign that the gathering of Israel had begun. On 22nd September 1827, the very day that Israel celebrated the, tr- the Feast of the Trumpets, Moroni gave the golden plates to the prophet Joseph Smith. And the Feast of the Trumpets is often seen as a symbol of the gathering of Israel. When Joseph translated that covenantal memory narrative in the Book of Mormon, it opened the door for a covenant renewal 
in the current dispensation. According to his title page, the Book of Mormon was written to the Lamanites, who are a remnant of the house of Israel and also the Jew and Gentile, to show, remind, the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers, and that they might know the covenants of the Lord, that they might not be cast off forever. The record was written preserved and translated so the remnant of the house of Israel as well as the Jew and the Gentile could remember the Abrahamic covenant that would be brought into the same fold. Some Mesoamerican scholars likewise believe that Mesoamerican shamans not only use shiners to see things of a spiritual nature, but they believe that this divine scene united them with past ancestors. The Old Testament Urim and Thummim served as a memorial to arouse divine remembrance, which helped maintain the eternal uh, covenant relationship between God and his people. I believe that Joseph's Urim and Thummim, the interpreters and the seer stone, invoked memories of the divine covenant record of God and his people as recorded by the Nephites. The translation of this covenantal narrative in English was the opening of a sacred bundle, a 19th century Ark of the Covenant, wherein sacred memorial narratives were not only restored, but caused the gates of sealing power to crack open. The earth was about to be flooded with the power and authority to gather God's covenant people. Translating the Book of Mormon set the restorative wheels in motion and paved the way for the priesthood that would eventually bind God's uh, people as one. In DNC 84, known as the Revelation of the Priesthood, uh, in that revelation, God commanded that a temple be built in Missouri, the New Jerusalem. He also noted the genealogy of the priesthood from the sons of Moses to Adam and reminded the saints that under Moses' leadership, the Israelites hardened their hearts. God was calling to remembrance to the line, uh, priesthood line of authority and how things changed when the Israelites were wicked. Then God reminded the 19th century saints that they are now part of the covenant, covenant people. This is in DNC 84. Those who join the church and obtain the priesthood become sons of Moses and are bound to the same covenant people as those in the uh, days of Moses and Abraham. Through this process of covenantal remembering, new members are charged, are changed or sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies, we read in DNC 84. The Lord then pointed out that the saints in the newly restored church were under condemnation Apparently, they, like the children of Moses, had hardened their hearts. The saints had treated sacred things lightly, and they were doomed to remain under this condemnation until they remembered the new covenant. And here's where we see the two principles closely tied together. They must remember their covenants with God. And what was the new covenant they must remember? We're told that it was the Book of Mormon. Translating the Book of Mormon initiated a renewal of the covenant that God had with his people, That covenant was actualized by the ritual remembering of the divine narrative, which is precisely what God, what Joseph did when he translated the plates. Shamans and prophets apparently see what God wants by ritually connecting, uniting, and remembering their ancestral people, the covenant people in the case of the Bible and Book of Mormon and uh, and other scripture. God's people are, share a sanctified narrative that binds them to each other and God. The meaning of translate and covenant are related. Both move something from one condition to another. And just as covenants are tokens of conversion, I believe that Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon represents a covenant, the new covenant per DNC 54, that not only converted people to Christ, but converted the ritual memory of the Nephites to an English narrative. The Book of Mormon translation process, I believe, was a ritual performance of actualizing a covenant memory. The covenant memory contained the Book of Mormon. The use of the seer stones, Urim and Thummim, the unbundling of the plates, 
the ritual remembering what the Nephites had written, all were partial to the enactment of a ritual covenant that bound the covenant people of of the ancient New World to the covenant people of Joseph's dispensation. So likewise, the translation of the Book of Mormon ritually opened, sanctified, and shared the divine narrative. Modern members of God's covenant people are now given the opportunity to ritually remember the divine covenant, just as the sacrament ritually remembers our baptismal covenant. And we do that by reading, studying, and internalizing the Book of Mormon through the guidance of the Holy Ghost. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. As always, your talks are enlightening and interesting. Thanks. That's good. So a few questions here. Um, It says, I can think of many examples of Joseph Smith or Nephi or New Testament authors using previous scriptures in ways that didn't necessarily match the original intent. Can you give a few examples of Old Testament writers doing this with earlier Old Testament texts that came before them? That's a tough one because as I uh, discuss in my book, I'm a... um, I'm a believer in most of the scholarly literature on the Old Testament that, that it was formed much later and probably based on uh, oral traditions, maybe some scraps of written stuff. And so really it, it came, at least the, the Pentateuch, the five books of the Old Testament, came together um, much later and uh, according to the cultural you know, leanings of the time. And so it, it's pretty hard to, to maybe find things that are based on anything older because we don't have anything older to compare it to. Okay, okay. So if you believe Messiah's interpreters were different from the brother of Jared's interpreters, which set of interpreters did Joseph Smith receive? Um, well, like, like I said, I have a long argument in my book that describes that, but we have to remember that obviously it wasn't necessary that he used the brother of Jared's interpreters because he ended up using his own seer stone for most of it. And so I think that that was, again, a part of... Uh, God's plan to help uh, recontextualize both for the Nephites as well as for Joseph Smith because when he sees something that reminds him of the seer stone that gives him that uh, um, I don't I hate to use the word courage but gives him you know uh, an appreciation that God works through means that he already supposed that he did and it, it kind of validates that and that his seer stones were um, going to give him divine revelation and how can we discern between a text's human or cultural influence versus God's influence? Yeah, well, that's and that uh, that gets into an entire thing about you know how do we understand doctrine? And uh, I actually have an article on the on the Fair website. It's it's linked of all things on the LDS.org website on on uh, doctrine. But it comes down to us. I mean, w- w- when when we feel. That's the only way we can know truth anyhow, any spiritual truth. And so we know doctrine when, we, uh, when it's confirmed to us by the Spirit. And uh, it gets a little bit tricky because I think that God kind of lets us work things out on our own as much as possible. I discussed this again in my book uh, that I think he works through our inspiration and intellect. He's not going to force feed us. He's not going to give us the answers to everything. This is all part of a, of a test that that's ultimately changes our heart, aligns us with Christ. And sometimes we have to you know, put on our own effort, just as Joseph Smith had to put in effort in translating. Um, it just didn't all come to him. We have to put in the effort to uh, sometimes understand what God wants as well. And sometimes it's hard to do that. Because, right. And sometimes it's hard to know 
I, I like what Brigham Young said about it. Is it's even even when we do get answers, sometimes difficult to know what those answers really mean. Exactly, which is tough. So this is a book that, once again, this is the second book that has been published through FAIR, actually, so we are the publisher of it. And because this is the FAIR conference, uh, we are giving it a discount for those people here at the conference, or if you're watching the conference and you you, um, uh, order from the bookstore today, we'll give you a discount as well. But it's just for the short time period, because this is a new release. This is just, this is out, you know, brand new, new, new release. And you'll be willing to sit out there and sign some books, correct? Absolutely. Okay. So with that, thank you so much. Thank you.